Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, inflation. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Caroline Hepke in London, where we're looking at the UK jobs market puzzle. I'm Doug Krisner. Leaders at the ASEAN Summit will consider the relationship between Japan and China. We get the Biden administration's takeaways from the latest jobs report. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. On Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we begin today's program with the state of the U.S. economy and what it means for the Federal Reserve when the FOMC gets together later this month. And joining us to talk about that is Bloomberg's international economic and policy correspondent, Michael McKee. Michael, thanks for being here. Let's talk about that better than forecast but still rather Fed-friendly August jobs report that we got this past week. It probably means that there's not going to be a rate increase in uh, September, uh, September 20th at the next Fed meeting. They can hold off. No reason in these latest numbers that they need to tighten. And there's a faction on the Fed that thinks that they've done enough. So they'll probably do a pause and wait and see what happens between now and November 1st when uh, the meeting after that takes place. The jobs report... Uh, you you put it well because it's it's in a sense mixed news. The hiring has slowed. Uh, the number for June was uh, for July rather was revised down significantly, and maybe August will be too. We don't know yet. Uh, but uh, and the unemployment rate went up to three point eight percent. But that's all within the scope of what the Fed is expecting because they have raised interest rates. They were thinking this would slow demand and that would uh, slow the labor market, and they had predicted four point one percent unemployment by the end of the year, that was thought to be kind of out of reach and that they might have to adjust that forecast. But now looks like it is certainly possible if we get a couple more months like August. Three notches higher from 3.5, 3.8%. Now, part of that, though, may be more people looking for a job and also that uh, bankruptcy filing by yellow. I mean, that's tens of thousands of jobs. Yellow was a big contributor, 37,000 jobs taken off the top line because they went out of business. Now, a lot of that will reverse. Uh, from what I understand, a lot of the yellow drivers have found new work because other companies were looking for truck drivers. So we'll see what that looks like uh, when we get to the September uh, employment report. The SAG-AFTRA, obviously, with a strike, you have... Uh, 
sort of a volatile situation where employees can come and go off payrolls depending on when things are settled. Interesting that it took this long for that to show up in the data. But one of the big reasons for that is most of those people are essentially freelancers. And the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics looks at payrolls as they see whether you get paid in the pay period, uh, including the 12th of the month. So a lot of those people probably didn't get paid in those time periods or they got their residual checks or something uh, outside that window. So they weren't counted until now. Also, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. The PCE. The important number there is not the slight rise in the year-over-year headline and core, but the fact that headline and core rose on a month-over-month basis by two-tenths of a percent for the second month in a row, because it shows the Fed on a sequential basis that we are making progress against inflation. And if you annualize those numbers, like the year-over-year numbers, then you come out with about 2.4% for uh, a number if, if that's what happens the rest of the year. So it shows that the Fed is getting closer to what it's looking for, which is something around 3% or a little below by the end of the year. And the Fed's going to have more data between now and their meeting in September. Normally, the week after payrolls is kind of empty of uh, significant indicators. But because the way the calendar fell this time with the jobs report coming on the first of the month, uh, there are a couple of indicators that people are going to be watching. One is ISM services. Now, we would have been looking at that for guidance on hiring, but now we know what the hiring was. The uh, question is going to be after today's slightly better than expected uh, the the uh, ISM manufacturing report um, that would suggest that maybe uh, if if Tim Fiore who runs that report is correct about it being that we were in the trough for manufacturing we might see us in the trough for services too. And the number could come in slightly better than expected, which is uh, something that uh, makes the soft landing argument. And the week after that, CPI for August, retail sales for that same month. The uh, sales number for uh, retail sales last month and for spending in the uh, spending report this past week were higher than anticipated. And the question is, do Americans still want to keep spending at that same rate? because most of their savings from the pandemic checks they got is gone. The the, uh, savings rate went down last month. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of numbers we get in terms of back-to-school spending, normally a month where you'd see a boost. Uh, So we'll look at that, but it's also CPI is going to be what everybody's watching. It'll be the next indicator. It's more timely in terms of when it comes out than the PCE. So... uh, If it shows continued progress, that'll just put a nail in the coffin of a September rate increase. And I think what you'll start to see is if it comes in lower than expected or at a a reasonable level, then that'll cause people to back off the idea of a November rate increase as well. So uh, CPI, a little uneven. We did, you know, uh, last meeting there was a, a 25 basis points increase. So, but it's heading in the right direction, right? We're heading in the right direction, and the Fed is clearly close to ending. The debate has been about whether they need to do one more increase or not. And at this point, maybe 25 basis points doesn't do a whole lot to crimp borrowing, uh, but it might be sending a signal. So there's the question, do you need to send that signal or not? The argument of those who think the Fed should finish is that they still have uh, lagged 
impacts coming from their previous rate increases that are really starting to hit the economy now. And they make a good case in that the hiring has slowed and uh, other as, uh, other parts of the economy have slowed. Americans are still spending, but you can maybe see the, the darkness at the end of the tunnel to, to reverse that. Um, and so we'll see uh, if, uh, if, if they see any reason in the data. Right now, it doesn't look like it. Now, Mike, you were at Jackson Hole, and Chairman Powell acknowledged the economic backdrop right now, a little more favorable than it was a year ago. He made clear, though, the bank is prepared to raise interest rates if it determines more hikes are needed, noting that a resilient economy comes with risks that inflation could reaccelerate. So there's still a chance. There's still a chance. And there are uh, signs that the economy is still doing well and, and is growing faster than anticipated. So if that's the case, does that create additional demand that puts us out of whack with supply and leads to some inflation? So far, it looks like uh, the odds are that it doesn't, but the Fed has to make sure. And they don't want to get in a situation where they're leading the markets astray by letting people think that they're done and then maybe having to come back in. That happened to the Reserve Bank of Australia. It happened to the Bank of Canada. And they don't want to repeat that. So they will keep their options open and tell people we're still maybe thinking about raising rates probably into 2024. Oh, boy. Now, this week, you're going to get a chance to talk to New York Federal Reserve Bank President John Williams. Maybe talk about monetary policy, the economic outlook, and all that. Tell me about Bloomberg's Market Forum FX in Focus event. Well, uh, certainly everybody's concerned about what's happening with the dollar. Is it going up still? Is it going to start backing off? And so that's the focus of the conference. But uh, with John Williams, we have one of the most important decision makers on the Fed. He is the vice chairman of the Open Market Committee, the group that sets interest rates, and he has a permanent vote on the committee. And he is seen as one of the people closest to Jay Powell, the chairman. So if you kind of know what John Williams is thinking, you'll have a pretty good idea of what Jay Powell is thinking. And so that makes him a, a really important and interesting guest for us. Exciting week ahead. Michael, thank you so much for being here and coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Some big economic data coming out this week in the UK. We'll get a preview. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is the Bloomberg Black Business Beat. About 10 years ago, longtime health industry executive Derek Miles was frustrated. He felt boxed in by the company he worked for. So when his company was looking to trim headcount, he took a leap of faith. I raised my hand and said, hey, I'll, I'll take the seventh package and become an entrepreneur. First, he created a medical delivery service. What we did was took the philosophy or the platform for Uber, Lyft, and Grubhub and brought it into healthcare. We actually launched a company and we started delivering prescriptions and vitamins and CBD all the people's homes. From there, the ideas kept coming. And today, Miles is founder and CEO of a successful concierge health company called CoreMed, with an impressive list of business partners. Here we are today providing concierge health and wellness services for both bracket banks, family offices, high net worth individuals. And he's using his position as an entrepreneur of color to elevate more diverse voices. I'm Bloomberg's Justin Milliner on the Black Business Beat. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
Up later in our program, a trip to Jakarta to preview the ASEAN Business and Investment Summit 2023. But first, the UK has the worst inflation problem in the G7, but there are signs things are improving. The latest food price data shows the pace of price increases is slowing. And in the coming days, we'll get a key update on the jobs market, including wage growth. That's the metric policymakers at the Bank of England are most worried about. And for more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchors Caroline Hepker and Stephen Carroll. Tom, the UK has had a very tight labour market combined with sky-high inflation. Bloomberg's jobs report with the recruitment firm Reed next week could give us a valuable early insight into the jobs market in the UK and whether things are improving. Recent data has offered something of a puzzle. You've got rising unemployment and falling vacancies, but wages have actually still been going up. Bloomberg Economics thinks that the unemployment rate might reach 5% by the middle of next year, but private sector pay growth for the three months to June was running at a staggering 8.2%. To unpack all of this, I've been speaking to Bloomberg economist Anna Andrade and economics reporter Lucy White about the jobs picture in the UK and the dilemma it poses for the Bank of England. So I think it's fair to say um, for the last two months now that um, the UK uh, jobs market is cooling. I think we can say that with a bit more confidence than probably at the start of the year. And that's because more indicators are moving in the right direction. So we've had this kind of decline in vacancies for a while. Mm -hmm. But in the last two months, you really got this kind of increase um, in unemployment. Um, Now, the problem is that if you look... Historically, um, you know, the labor market is still tight. Yeah. And we've created this chart that kind of measures supply versus demand. And because this kind of imbalance has been what's kind of keeping inflationary pressures high. Um, and when you look at that, uh, you see that the mismatch has eased a bit, but it's still far higher than anything you've seen um, historically. So it's cooling, the labor market is cooling, but the starting point was just an incredibly red hot uh, jobs market. So, you know, for the BOE, that might mean, you know, that more is needed. Mm. Lucy, how do you see the uh, employment market at the moment cooling, but from a very, very difficult spot? And and obviously, part of that is also the migration story. But how do you see the, the labour market picture in the UK? Exactly. I mean, we are starting, as, as Anna said, we are starting to see that that cooling. Um, you know, anecdotally, I'm hearing more about, you know, people being made redundant and stuff, although that is, you know, kind of at a much lower level than it has been historically. Um, but at the same time, you know, we came from, as Anna said, such a, a high point Um we're having to, uh, you know, we've still got a skills shortage in the UK. Many businesses are saying that, you know, whether it be, um, you know, the very sort of high tech jobs mm-hmm. that, that that are in demand in the economy right now, or whether they're kind of high skilled manual jobs, you know, for for example, welders, um, you know, uh, construction workers, um, as we're still importing huge numbers of people from abroad um, to help out with that skills gap. Anna, where do you see the unemployment rate going then over the next six to 12 months? Because obviously the campaign of interest rate hikes that we've seen from the Bank of England, part of that is to 
bring down uh, wage gains and employment. So what, what's the forecast, you think, for the next six months? So in our forecast, um, essentially, this kind of increase in unemployment that, that you've had over the past two months is just the beginning of a more sustained increase. We see the unemployment rate peaking at uh, 5% um, by the middle of next year. Um, and that's a, a very different outlook or a slightly different outlook than the BOE. So we're a bit more downbeat. The mm. BOE at its latest forecast, of course, this was prior to the latest job, jobs market data, but it saw uh, the unemployment rate hovering close to 4% by the middle of next year. So that's a one percentage point difference, which is quite significant. Um, and I think the difference between our forecast essentially reflects the difference in our views on how the economy is going to uh, evolve. We kind of see the economy tipping um, into recession. And as you said, uh, because of, you know, it's a monetary policy induced recession. Um, um, and so we don't we don't have a view that there will be a soft um, a soft landing. Um, it's kind of that view. For you to believe in that view, you really need to think that interest rates kind of lost all their all their power, and that's not what we're seeing in the labour market in residential construction. So we're already seeing signs. Of yeah, and, and that Goldilocks sort of view of the economy, which is dominated in the US but has also kind of fed into the thinking in the UK, that does seem to have faded. It seemed to be something that was largely earlier this year, but but the Bank of England is yet to be convinced. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, we'll, 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 have, we'll have more data. And I think they have, um, they do think that the, um, the kind of the bounce back that you're seeing in real uh, wages and the drop in energy prices, that that's going to kind of, the, I mean, and, and th- those are important factors right now that can kind of support the, the economy. But uh, in the opposite direction, you have interest rates. And in the PMI, you know, so, mo- so many more businesses are quoting interest rates. So that's, that's already having kind of an impact. Mm. Lucy, what sectors of the economy have held up sort of best in terms of jobs demand? And again, what's the outlook over the next few months? Well, we've been doing some really interesting work with Reed Recruitment on this. They're one of the UK's biggest um, jobs platforms um, in terms of you know vacancies and um, job va- job vacancies and job offerings, and they have. Uh, given us access to all of the job postings that they've been putting on their site um, since 2018 and there's some really interesting um, you know kind of hot spots in terms of the sectors that are doing well at the moment where vacancies are high where wages are high Um, and some of those are areas like the um, uh, energy sector obviously Mm -hmm. you know we've been seeing you know huge uh, price increases in energy bills but um, that's in in some ways translating into jobs as well. Um, also the consulting sector um, is you know uh, as London's the London bubble always does particularly well in the in these times um, so consulting is doing well um, and there are other kind of you know high skilled um, areas that are you know particularly in demand right now. How much do you think that um, mandating work in office as opposed to work from home is going to change things. When you talk about high-end jobs, Goldman Sachs, for example, mandating a full return to um, you know in-person working. What sort of impact do you think that's going to have on the labour market? Is that a, such a big story here in the UK? Well, it's interesting because you know we're coming from somewhere where a few months ago the 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 big theme was that the power was now in the hands of the workers. You mm-hmm. know, where there was such demand for workers that essentially people could negotiate the terms of their own employment. Um, you know, everyone was demanding working from home, flexible working. Um, And that is starting to shift, I think, as we see the labour market cooling. You know, as you say, we're seeing several firms sort of saying, you know, we want you in at least three days, four days, sometimes even five five days a week. Um, And workers now don't quite have the same 
power, especially with inflation so high and, you know, um, the the worry that a recession might be coming. Um, workers don't quite have the same negotiating power to be able to um, to fight that. And again, you know, the, the impact that we're going to see on different types of people in the labour market, you know, for example, since the pandemic ended, we've seen a huge rise in women's working hours. And I've been speaking to several experts on that. And many of them have said it is due to this rise in hybrid working. The fact that women who have typically tended to take on more care responsibilities are now able to work more of the hours that they want to because of this hybrid working, you know, if they're looking after children. And so the impact that we might see on that, you know, whether we sort of see women's hours reverting to mm. pre-pandemic levels is, is remains to be seen. My thanks to Bloomberg economics reporter Lucy White there and our economist Anna Andrade speaking to me ahead of the Bloomberg Read Jobs report that comes out in the next few days. I'm Caroline Hepger here in London. You can catch us every weekday morning for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe beginning at 6am in London. That's 1am on Wall Street. Tom. Thank you, Stephen and Caroline. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to Asia and a look at the upcoming ASEAN Business and Investment Summit. I'm Tom Busby and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. And this week in Jakarta, it's the ASEAN Business and Investment Summit. And for more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak Asia host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner. Tom, in the coming week, Indonesia will be hosting the 43rd ASEAN Leader Summit in Jakarta. This is going to be an opportunity to outline a longer-term vision for the group. But it will be difficult to ignore what has been happening north of the region, the growing tension between Japan and China. How concerned should these ASEAN nations be over Tokyo's hardening stance against Beijing? Let's take a closer look now with Bloomberg's Isabel Reynolds, Bloomberg Asia government reporter, joining us from our studios in Tokyo. Isabel, it's always a pleasure. It seems as though we have to begin with, and this may seem a little strange, the Chinese reaction to the move by Japan to release that radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima reactor. How will this or how has this impacted relations so far? Right. Well, um, despite Japan's best efforts to explain the releases as something that's safe, that's routine, despite having the um, endorsement of the IAEA, the nuclear um, uh, body, international nuclear body, China has really reacted in an extremely negative fashion. That's been not just from the government, but from the public at large. So we've seen uh, China slap a ban on uh, uh, Japanese seafood and we've seen a sort of uh, social media campaigns against Japan we've seen a campaign of phone calls made from China to Japan to all sorts of organizations and individuals that are not even connected to this release um, so it's created a whole lot of extremely negative emotion in both countries uh, which is going to be quite hard to get over I think. this may seem like a bit of an odd pivot but I'm wondering at the same time whether Japan's reputation has been tarnished enough to deter 
Chinese tourists because there has been such um, a trend that's been holding up for such a long time, it seems like, that where Chinese tourists have been flocking to Japan. Is there some risk that that could weaken now? Would it be maybe a longer term concern? That could be a concern, I think, in the coming months. But whether it will actually last a long time, I, I think is less certain. Um, we actually have a, a BI report out on this. And looking back at the numbers in, in previous spats of, that have existed between the two countries, we've seen a dip or quite a sharp fall for a few months, but, but it soon bounces back. So um, I think Japan might be relatively confident that although there will be a temporary effect, the Chinese tourists will come back in the end. Um, the, uh, the timing is a bit unfortunate because China had just sort of lifted the ban on group tours uh, to a lot of countries, including Japan. So uh, Prime Minister Kishida even had said that he hoped to see larger numbers of Chinese tourists in the coming months and years. Um, so from that point of view, it's, it's unfortunate for the tourism industry, but I don't think it will be necessarily a very long-term effect. Recently, the Prime Minister, and I'm speaking here of Kishida, he labeled China as its uh, Japan's greatest strategic challenge. I'm wondering when you hear a statement like that, how it might reverberate across ASEAN and whether it's brought maybe a little bit more anxiety to the region, a situation where if you're a leader of an ASEAN nation, you may be feeling some pressure to take sides right now, to have to choose between the world's second and the world's third largest economy. Um, yeah, I, th I think the, the choice in ASEAN now is really much more between um, China and the U.S., um, Japan is sort of very much a second string at the moment and, and a sort of a very close ally, an increasingly close ally of the U.S. Um, so I think that the, the bigger issue on that front will be the fact that Joe Biden um, is not taking part in the ASEAN summit this time around. Um, and that may be seen negatively by some countries or leaders uh, within the region. Although Vice President Kamala Harris will attend, and I'm wondering whether or not that's going to offer kind of a, a positive tone somewhat. Yes, I mean, I think it, not to send anybody or to send somebody much more junior w would have been far worse. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, for the president of Indonesia, he would very much want to have this sort of global attention and the glamour of, of hosting the U.S. president. And quite frankly, the vice president isn't quite the same. So um, although Kamala Harris, we understand, will be making a huge effort to reach out to local people and she'll be having a, a very busy schedule with a lot of events, um, it just isn't quite the same if you don't have the president on the ground. Having said that, I think on the arguing from the other side, that this may not be a significant move by the US. They may not be intending any insult by this. Um, president Biden has very much reached out to a lot of uh, Southeast Asian countries, including the Philippines. He's made a great effort to uh, restore ties there. He hosted uh, the Singaporean um, premier last year and indeed, indeed held a US special, the first special U.S. ASEAN summit at the White House last year. So I think from that point of view, they would argue that they have been trying to strengthen ASEAN ties. Nonetheless, I think we can agree that the global order is changing quite dramatically. In recent weeks, we saw China assert itself as a power behind uh, the BRICS summit in Johannesburg. How is that being viewed in Japan right now, that, that China seems to be aggregating more of its authority, more of its power? Yes, I think that is something of a concern for Japan, uh, which has always tried to sort of maintain strong ties with the Middle East because Japan doesn't have a lot of its own sort of natural resources and so has been very heavily reliant, of course, on the Middle East for, 
for oil and so on. Um, so to have those countries sort of move slightly out of its orbit and towards the, the kind of BRICS and China side, I think is somewhat unnerving and is something that they will want to sort of tackle and, and try to balance out in the com coming months. So it'll be interesting to see what they do to try to uh, achieve that. I'm wondering from the Japanese perspective whether the summit... Uh in Jakarta presents an opportunity for Prime Minister Kichira to perhaps get a boost in his approval rating. Do you think that's possible? I think there could be a boost, a possible boost on the margins. I don't think um, diplomatic efforts generally um, have a huge effect on public approval. Um, the Japanese public is generally much more uh, fixated on the bread and butter issues like, like probably most voters around the world. And his, his support at the moment is near its lows uh, since he took office two years ago um, and the, one of the main reasons for that is rising prices for things like gasoline and food which are extremely concerning for many people in Japan. Um, having said that, um, if he is seen to be sort of standing up directly to China against these um, accusations that, that this water release from the Fukushima plant is dangerous, um, I think that will improve his image somewhat in the eyes of the Japanese people. So to that point, I'm wondering, uh, the Premier Li Chiang in uh, China may be somewhat confrontational in that. Would that be your expectation that there is the potential for a bit of uh, embarrassment here or, or the attempt to embarrass? That, is, that could certainly potentially happen. One of the traditional events that we have at ASEAN is what's called the ASEAN Plus Three event, where you have um, not just the ASEAN leaders, but also Japan, South Korea and China. And if China takes the opportunity of that event to sort of try and berate uh, Japan over the Fukushima water release, um, that would be a rather unpleasant and uncomfortable situation, of course, for, for the Japanese. And they will try to rebut that um, and put forward their own views on, on how this release is going. So we talked a moment ago about the possibility that this could maybe, maybe in a minor way, move the dial when it comes to um, kind of public sentiment with regard to the Japanese prime minister. But I'm wondering how he is being seen right now within the government, uh, within his own party. Um, he, he's never been a sort of hugely popular figure within his own party, um, but now uh, that is also reflected in the um, among the general public as well. So he'll be he's planning, we believe, to reshuffle his cabinet next month in an in an effort to um, improve his standing, um, and he'll have to look carefully at which factions within his party are represented in the cabinet and so on to to maintain his position until uh, the party leadership election, which is just over a year away at the moment. What about the government's communication with China right now? Would that be something that the Prime Minister is really working to improve? I think he very much wants to improve communications with China, despite um, having called it a risk to Japan's security. I'll be looking forward to reading your coverage of the ASEAN Leaders Summit on the Bloomberg Terminal. Isabel, thanks so much for being with us, uh, sharing your insight. Bloomberg's Isabel Reynolds, a Bloomberg Asia government reporter joining from Tokyo. I'm Doug Krisner. You can join Brian Curtis and myself for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, weekdays beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to D.C. for the Biden administration's takeaways from the August jobs report. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
Now, on Friday, we got the August jobs report showing a labor market undergoing a controlled cooling, punctuated by solid hiring, slower earnings growth, and more people returning to the workforce. For more, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and Bloomberg Sound On host, Joe Matthew. Yeah, Tom, the impact of the jobs report will surely stick with us through the holiday weekend. After the report dropped Friday, I caught up with Julie Su, the acting labor secretary, for what the Biden administration is taking away from these numbers. So the slight uptick in unemployment was due entirely to more people coming into the labor market. Mm-hmm. I think that is also a sign of optimism, right? It's a sign of the strength of our economy. It was also a very small uptick so that the overall unemployment rate remains under 4% for the longest stretch since uh, the 1960s. What do you think as we walk into this Labor Day when you see Wall Street rally on the idea of rising unemployment? I think that these are all signs that the president's economic agenda, what we call Bidenomics, his investing in America, right? The idea that if we do our jobs well, we can have a tight labor market where workers share in prosperity, where, uh, you know, we, we re- recover from the economic catastrophe of the global pandemic to a point where we have steady and stable growth, that all this is not only possible, but it's actually happening. You've been asked a lot about union actions lately with regard to the UAW, what's going on in Hollywood right now. There could be flight attendants involved. This could go uh, beyond that. I'm not going to ask you if you're getting involved yet, because I know you're waiting to be asked if that happens to make a decision at some point. But what are your models telling you? If all of these strikes were to coincide in the fall, what would that mean for our economy? Right. So let's put all this in the context of the jobs day numbers that we're talking about. This is an economy that has defied all expectations in terms of its recovery, both the rapid pace of it and the and, uh, you know, the, the, how, how broadly shared it is. Mm-hmm. This is Bidenomics in action. Part of the president's commitment is to empowering workers, making sure that workers get their fair share and do well. And part of that has meant that unions have more ability, power to demand changes at the bargaining table. We've seen some really good results from that, right? Uh, the Teamsters and UPS resolved their issues. Yeah. People wrung their hands about that too and wondered, you know, expected that not to happen. Sure. It not only happened, but they, they ratified a contract with some 86% of, of, of members. The West Coast ports, 29 ports resolved issues that were really complicated as well and have a multi-year contract. Mm-hmm. These are th- th- these are these are what what happens. Do you see this resolving what, itself? I mean, I'm not going to make a prediction about that, but I do think that the process requires that we respect the party's ability mm-hmm. and their continued commitment to bargaining at the table. I have to ask you about Taylor Swift. I don't know if you saw Taylor <laughs> Swift when she came to town, but we're hearing that the impact the Federal Reserve even mentioned this of her tour and even Beyonce's tour to some extent helped to paper over some weakness that might have otherwise emerged in this jobs report. What's it going to look like when everyone comes? off tour after the summer. So I'm going to say something about women in general, right? Women are powering this economic recovery. We can talk about Beyonce, we can talk about Taylor Swift. I want to talk about the record numbers of women in the job market now. Remember, during the pandemic, women were pushed out of the labor market through things like our lack of paid leave, uh, difficulty with accessing childcare. Those women are now back in the labor market. We have the fifth month of historic percentage of women in jobs. And I think we should continue that effort to create good jobs, create good union jobs, and make sure that everybody has access to them. That's Acting Labor Secretary Julie Su. And Tom, we'll see, of course, how the Fed reacts to these jobs numbers in just a couple of weeks at the next Fed meeting. In Washington, I'm Joe Matthew. 
Thanks, Joe. That was Bloomberg Sound On host Joe Matthew reporting from our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. And you can hear Sound On weekdays 1 to 3 p.m. on Bloomberg Radio. And starting Tuesday, you can watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.